This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things, and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Winsler Powers. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. This one was so fun. We had Alex Collard on, who guys you, you might know from, anyway, he's he's huge on TikTok, I think 200,000 something followers. He's also a Chicago comedian that we love so much. We just had him on Spitfire. He has his own show, The Laugh Yard, which you should definitely check out if you're in the city. And Bridie, the band he's with, he's, he's a, a drummer for them. He is so multi-talented and just like everything he decides to do. It's incredible. I was so glad to have him on. It's kind of inf- infuriating if we're going to be honest about it. It's yeah. <laughs> a little, little bit that too. And he wanted to come on today and talk about Pixar. And it was one of those episodes I love where I have so many notes and when doesn't look down once and just knows every deep <laughs> secret behind the scenes thing here. Those are so fun to listen to. So I, I love this episode. Yeah, I very much out myself as a nerd. You listen a few weeks ago and you're like, wow, when knows a lot about horror movies. And now you're like listening to this one. And you're like, Wow, uh, Wynn is nine years old. Was Wynn just know every movie? Is that, is it just all the movies? <laughs> so this, this one was a lot of fun, guys. I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's get into it. Let's go. Alex Collier, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, good to be with y'all. So we just had you on Spitfire. This will be coming out early November, but but we had you on, I mean, we're recording this October. We had on you on the last Spitfire. Yes. It was a great set. You yelled at me while wearing a coat. <laughs> it was <Yeah. laughs> the highlight of any set, really. Yeah. I was pretending to be my dad looking for me and decided to to mix up all the, the hot sauces and drink them. Yeah, it, w- it was a great set. I mean, your sets have been so fun to watch uh, for everyone listen you can find Alex Collier all over social media at Alex Collier but TikTok is where you're most known or have the biggest following at least the bread and butter if you will yeah <laughs> and I think your stand up is reflective that you, you cover so much range each show I see you it could easily be a completely different persona than the last one <laughs> yeah I get bored I had to have a, a friend tell me because I would stress myself out before every show because I come from an improv background and I would never repeat a character and I would always like try to write a new bit before every set he was like you know you could just just do it again <laughs> i was like no everyone would be mad at me he's like one no one would care and also most of the people probably haven't seen it so do that <laughs> right it's this, this weird thing too because i've definitely got the like okay there, there are ones that you have to do a number of times to get them right but then there are also ones like oh cool i finally got this one right and i am so tired of doing it yeah and now it's done and then so kill it <laughs> it's like right <laughs> I, I know this works i want to do the next one and i since i i started hosting i've been using that as an opportunity to do characters and and stuff outside of 
of the set too, because it's it's an, a chance to be like, no, I'm hosting. I can do whatever I want. It's just a weird sense of power that like, well, the audience has to be here now and there's nothing to lose here since I'm the one running this. So it's like, yeah, a chance to do all the weird shit. I just love that comedians have that anxiety of just like, I have to write new jokes every single time. Like, could you imagine a band that's like backstage just like, fuck, we have to write a whole set's worth of songs. <laughs> well, but that's, I mean, part of it is because that is just how it is consumed. Like music, you can cover other band songs and you can have like a hit 20 years ago and you can sell out a concert venue just based on the nostalgia of that hit. However, if you are a comedian and you go up there and you do like your best album, everyone's gonna be like, wait a second, we know the punchlines. Oh, right. We've heard this. Yeah. <laughs> like, I guess we're happy to see you, but like you didn't. What is this? <laughs> I've gone to like two like big stand up shows where like the comedian like finished, came back out. It was just like, so what do you guys want to hear? I'm like, he's playing the hits. <laughs> That's wild. God, I listened to a comedy album from a comedian I liked and like half of the album was stuff from his previous album four years ago. That's bizarre to record it twice. <laughs> I was honestly mad. I was like, dude, this is on tape. You don't need to do this one again. Yeah. You're not Taylor Swift. You don't have to do like my version. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Especially too, because right. It's not like it's going to be, this is a, uh, this is going to be a creative cover. We're trying something a little experimental here. It's like, no, it's the same joke. Oh, people get so mad when you do covers and stand up too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, but you're in a band too in Bridie. Yes. So what's that position being like from like one where you are trying your hardest to get something w well known enough that you can do it over and over again? <laughs> yeah, do you right. get bored there too? I, I don't know. I thought I would. And here's what's different. And it's that there are three other people relying on me to do exactly what they expect me to do. Oh, that's interesting. And I can't just riff. I can't just go off and do, do my own thing. Like it has to be the way it is. And that's fun because there's like a connection. And like I've drummed since I was in like ninth grade, however old that is, who knows. And I had a few people like separate people from different friends group watch me drum this past like year. And I've never seen me do that, but have watched me do comedy for a long time. And they were like, we've never seen you so happy. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, no, how sad do I look all the time? Right. I mean, I'm sure I look happy, but like the fact that you had to be like, oh, you have that ability. Oh, this is so great. <laughs> it's great. I love I love music. I love drumming. It's a completely different experience, even though in a lot of ways it's the same, I guess. Oh, sure. No, no, it's completely different. I, I used to play in a band, too. And I'll say that that was a completely different experience of just like, oh, I'm just going to go up there with my friends. We're going to do this shit that we do all the time for fun, just by ourselves. But now we're doing it in front of people people and we're going to get money for beer afterwards yeah <laughs> like that's so good whereas like being a comedian it's just like okay i'm gonna go up there with people who might just hate me right and they're gonna hate <laughs> me because i'm gonna tell them a little bit about my life and they're going to make a lot of assumptions about who i am as a person based on that and yeah. if i get a bad reaction i have only myself to commiserate with when all is said and done like i cannot just be like well, I suck, but we all suck together if it's a band. But if it's just me, it's just my feelings, and it really is not fun. Honestly, sounds like we should just be doing sketch. Like, <laughs> then you have the team, and it's not all on you, and you've also got that they're relying on you. I, I was just talking about this with someone, and I was like, yeah, you can't cover things, you can't repeat things as a comedian, et cetera, et cetera. Although, sketch 
is different. Yeah. People will like to go back and watch a sketch they've seen a bunch of times. For some reason, that's different. It's still jokes, but there's performance. I, I don't know. It's 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 interesting. Absolutely. It was actually, I, I meant to write you after your last, uh, the last show you did with us to ask you to do a sketch with me for the new Bond movie. Oh, I'd love to. Is it over? Can I not do that anymore? <laughs> no, we, we haven't. I haven't done it yet. But the character was the guy who has to write the puns that James Bond uses before he murders someone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it is one guy. There's a guy who writes the script and then there's a guy who specifically only writes the puns. Exactly. That's it. <laughs> so this is, it's going to be the, the back and forth of him arguing with James Bond about the, the puns he's writing and this, this artistic take on these murders. So uh, we'll, we might cut this so we don't, don't ruin the sketch, but I'll, I'll follow up with you after this. <laughs> <laughs> but no, because it was a lot of fun and I, I thought it'd be like an interview kind of thing. And then it was actually because you came up in the dad costume and I was like, oh, this is, this is who the guy should be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> You should be angry about this. Great. So I already have it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we also have a topic for today. What did you want to talk about? I wanted to talk about Pixar movies and specifically how incredible they are until they start diving into the uh, unnecessary world of sequels. Yeah. Which, I mean, like I've never heard somebody say like, oh, Pixar, not, <laughs> not for me. For me. It's never, like, it's never just... seen what I like. <laughs> if you find those people, it's the people that say that they don't like animated films, which or, or like animation or anything like that, which I'm just like, all right, well, I don't even want to like discuss that with you. I, I'm, I'm not worried about it. Right. It's like you are you're missing so much here. <laughs> I truly hate it when people are like, oh, I don't like this art form. And it's like you hate like the whole art form. Like people are like, <laughs> oh, I hate like rap or I hate musicals or I hate country music. I'm just like, how do you just say you hate like an entire blanket yeah. <laughs> statement. So like people who say they hate animated stuff or they can't get into it. I'm just like, maybe you just didn't like two or three things you saw. Yeah, I saw one episode of American Dad and yeah. just not for me. I'm not going to watch anything in the entire thing. It doesn't work. I know I won't like Toy Story because like, I saw this one thing on Family Guy that was really <laughs> offensive to me. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a clip from Family Guy. It's not mine. Uh, so I, I just finished my first animated pilot that I wrote with uh, Michael Tannenbaum who we had on before. And it was one of things where as I was writing it and comparing it to, you know, work doing on another original script and seeing like, oh my God, you have so much, you can do anything here. You're not limited by the constraints of reality and how insanely freeing that is to like, no, you can make anything you want happen was such a cool experience and made me really appreciate going back to watch these movies more about like, oh yeah, this was a bold choice they made here. Oh yeah, it's awesome. I personally... Huge Pixar fan. Uh, I'm going to get into this really heavy to the point that a lot of people are going to be just like, I think Wynn is the most uncool person I've ever heard in my life. And that's going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> that was my plan the whole time. I was going to, I wanted to absolutely reveal you here. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's been listening to this podcast for over a year, just being like, that Wynn guy sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Now I'm going to just go off on Pixar movies for an hour and just lose all that goodwill I've been building up. But I have strong opinions because I saw Toy Story 2 in the theaters changed my life. I, I love the optimism that you think people have been listening to this for a year and have come out of the conclusion that either of us are cool. <laughs> oh, Andrew, I was doing one of those classic yuck yuck jokes that we do on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> one of our famous japes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, what, what were the ones that you saw in theaters that you're, you're talking about? Toy Story 2. That was the first one I remember seeing in theaters. I think actually the one I saw in theaters first was A Bug's Life, which, you know, not their strongest release, but honestly not bad. Better than Ants. Oh my God, it might have been a bug's life. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> I might have lied about my formative moment of my youth. <laughs> Wait, did you say so Bug's Life was 98, Toy Story 2 was 99. Yeah, so Bug's Life then. Alex, first Pixar. I'm just racking my brain here. Uh the good dinosaur. I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> You're a huge good dinosaur <laughs> I've got to be honest. I'm coming clean. I've only seen the good dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought they made a sequel, but I guess it was just Cars 3. I'm sorry. I messed everything up. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not sure which one I saw because I guess Toy Story I probably saw just like on VHS. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough for VHS. And I actually didn't even realize that Bugs Life was their second movie. Yeah. I mean, Toy Story, Bugs Life, Toy Story 2. They came out hard. It might have been Monsters, Inc., to be honest. I think it was Monsters, Inc. Monsters, Inc., Fantastic. It was one of those ones where it's like, oh, this is a really interesting concept where, again, we're just very out there. We're going to have monsters powered by human energy, essentially. It's just a, such a strange starting place. And then, obviously, the relationship development. It was it was a very cool movie. Yeah, I'm a huge Monsters, Inc. fan. Also, looking back at A Bug's Life, I always forget that Kevin Spacey is the, the bad guy in it. And every time I'm reminded of that, I'm just like, ooh, <laughs> woof. <Yeah. laughs> Honestly, the favorite part of A Bug's Life, though, was Richard Kind playing the, uh, the sidekick. He's yeah. the sidekick to Kevin Spacey's villain. He's very good. I had the Bugs Life video game and I played it nonstop <laughs> on the original PlayStation. Me and my brothers did. Huge fan. That cast fucking stacked. It's uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Richard Kind, Kevin Spacey. Dave Foley at his peak. Yeah. Dave Foley. <laughs> Coming fresh off a of news radio and kids in the hall. <laughs> there was this weird period where it looked like David Dave Foley was possibly going to be huge. He is to some people. He is to big fans of the Bugs life yeah and kids in the hall yeah <laughs> i just knew you were gonna say kids in the hall and then you did it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you know I, I, they've got a really stacked library also i thought more but they have 24 films which honestly is a significant amount considering they came out in 1995 but i was pick, expecting there to be like 70 well the first one came out in 1995 but i mean let's talk about the history because like 1995 for their first movie insane but then you sent me the notes about the beginning of pixar and i was like that can't be fucking true <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, I kept this short. It was just six pages this time. Uh, so let's let's get into some of the formation here. So they started, yeah, in 1974, when the New York Institute of Technology founder, Alexander Schur, also owned a traditional animated studio. And he established the Computer Graphics Lab and recruited computer scientists who wanted to make the world's first computer animated film. And this original team was Edwin Catmull, uh, Malcolm Blanchard, Alvy Ray Smith, and David DeFrancesco. And this was one of those where everyone involved so believed in the goal and the project where they just wanted to make a full computer animated film and sure kept putting money into this graphics lab, giving the group everything they said they needed, an estimated $15 million until NYIT became like in deep financial trouble because he put so much to this one aspect. And uh, eventually the group realized that they're going to need to work in a real studio to reach their goal. And Francis Ford Coppola invited Smith to his house for a three-day media conference where Coppola and George Lucas shared their vision for the future of digital movie making and Lucas approached them and got six employees to move over to Lucasfilm working for the graphics group which launched in 79 and they all had to do this slowly because they kind of didn't want to let sure know so they left and kind of got another job for a little while and then took a job over with Lucas but Lucas brought Catmull over and put him in charge of the entire computer graphics lab Smith also joined was main director of the graphics group and the research they had pioneered had pioneered a lot of the foundational techniques that be used in computer animation and further developed the tools at Lucasfilm I just love the idea of like George Lucas seeing like their proof of concepts and everything for computer graphics because like they're brand new. This is like a brand new technology. No one's ever done it before. George Lucas is looking at this is like, Oh, I'm going to ruin my first movie with this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's fascinating to me is that they put $15 million in and couldn't make it work. I can't imagine putting even an 
like a, a fraction of that money into any of my problems and not making it work. It's an insane investment. I know it's not that much money. Like anyone in the industry, any like like that $15 million is a drop, but like just still seeing that amount of money and being like, what how what was wrong? <laughs> Us being artists, I think, is part of it. Cause we're just like they lost $15 million. That has to be devastating. But if you think about like if we were scientists for the Pentagon and somebody was just like, oh my God, we lost $15 million, you'd be like, Oh, that's fucking nothing. Wait, so it's Sunday? Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> you know how many bombs I've just thought up that didn't work because, like, apparently we can't shoot bombs into space? Like, that's, like, their whole thing. Like, $15 million <laughs> to an artist, unbelievably big number. That is a drop in the bucket if you want to hurt people. Except it did, in terms of how much is, is needed, yeah, because it did, you know, almost bankrupt New York Institute of Technology. So they're really going on. But what's interesting about this too was one thing that came up a lot when I was researching this was Moore's Law, which is talking about how the number of transistors in an integrated circuit doubles about every two years. Because this is generally understood as the, the progress of technology and how vast new capabilities are going to become available. And based on Moore's Law, they are so far out from this being even possible. Possible. And they're still just pouring money into this with like, no, we're going to get there eventually <laughs> because they, they can't get there anywhere near this time. In the early 80s, a designer suggested naming a new digital compositing computer, the Picture Maker. Smith suggests that the laser based device have a catchier name. Uh, he uses Pixar after a meeting a chance to Pixar. And in 82, the Pixar team began working on special effects film sequences with industrial light and magic. So at this point, they, they've kind of realized like, okay, okay, we can do a little something, but it's not long before they're like, there is no way this can advance at the rate we need it to. We need to start working on hardware instead and have something to keep a business going. So because in, in 86, the group had reached 40 people and they spun it out as a corporation by Catmull and Smith because the group had been worried after Lucas's divorce in 83 and obviously his wife had been an editor and, and crucial for so much of what he accomplished. Yeah, if you listen to our Star Wars episode, uh, without George Lucas's wife, we would not have Star Wars as we oh, know yeah. it today. Because <laughs> it was apparently like four hours and god awful and nobody understood what was going on. Yeah, between the divorce and the drop-off in revenue from Star Wars licensing following Return of the Jedi, they figured he was going to sell the whole graphics group, and they're like, well, if this happens, we're going to lose the team, and we all think we need to stay together to make the first, you know, CGI movie happen. So they decide the best way to do this is to spin out and form their own company, but this is when they also realize technology is not increasing at a rate that's going to make this possible, so we need to come up with a real project we can sell to stay alive in the meantime, and they decided to form as a hardware company with their Pixar image computing as their core product, primarily sold to governmental, scientific, and medical markets. So not at all in the direction they were hoping to head. But in 86, a newly independent Pixar was headed by Cat Mole as president and Smith as VP. And Lucas was searching for investors, which led to an offer from Steve Jobs, who had just been ousted from Apple the previous year and founded Next as a competitor that was not doing great. And Lucas thought the offer was too low, but Smith and Cat Mole had been declined 45 times by venture capitalists and large corporations. Computer graphic movie was not going to work. So Lucas was like, well, we can't get anybody, so I've got to accept Jobs' low offer of $5 million. <laughs> Just $5 million. It's got to be so hard to conceptualize what, like, it makes so much sense to us, but it's got to be so hard to conceptualize what, like, if someone came to me and was like, we're going to make movies, but 
just with computers. I'd be it, it back in that time. I can't imagine anyone being like, "Oh, that sounds so cool," and something everyone's gonna want to watch. You know, like the game with the pong. That kind of stuff is gonna be movies now. Right. That's that time period. <laughs> cool. <laughs> You're right. It's incredible. I mean, if you remember when the internet first started developing, there were so many articles that were talking about how the internet was just a fad, and it's the people that can see what it's going to be 20 years down the line that that have the vision because you're you are working with something where it's basically showing someone a piece of wood and saying this is going to be a house where being able to see to the end is going to be impossible for most anybody i'm gonna go one step further computers making movies was not a close like one-to-one like they're not even in the same wheelhouse it's like (laughs) saying like hey we have an idea that we're going to make an entire symphony orchestra with my car keys would you like (laughs) to invest in that they didn't even have digital film yet right no the first fully digital film was late 80s i think it wasn't early (laughs) yeah no i think even after that that was when they had just kind of started to, to work but yeah fully digital no couldn't have been until 90s i think from what i remember and i might be totally wrong on this it was oh brother we're out though but maybe not the first digitally filmed and post-produced feature film was wind horse shot in tibet and nepal in 1996 oh okay gotcha so 89 must have been that when they started using that oh that that new editing technique where they could actually cut it together <laughs> yeah okay. uh so it was digital editing at that point yeah so yeah you're, you're right the idea of like look you you got to be able to imagine what this is going to be and you have nothing to base that on but that's obviously what jobs has always been good at so he, he puts in five million million of his own money for technology rights and puts in five million more cash as capital to the company and joins the board as chairman in the process. If you want a guy who's going to give you as little money as possible, but take credit for your ideas, Steve Jobs is the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> well, they made a deal with uh, <laughs> this uh, Japanese publisher, Shogo Kugan, at the time, while well, still at Lucasfilm, rather, to make a computer animated movie called Monkey, based on the mythical Monkey King. And the project continued for a while after they went independent, but that's when it became really clear that technology wasn't advanced enough. Computers weren't powerful enough and the budget would be way too high to make this, you know, into a reality. So they continued focusing on the hardware side and were noticed by Disney, but they're just interested in buying the Pixar image computer and custom software written by Pixar to migrate uh, the heavy ink and paint part of 2D animation to a more automated method. And the company's first feature to be released using the new animation method, or Disney's first feature to be released using the new animation method, was the Black Cauldron. So not a huge success by Disney's standard, but it still made their job much easier. I don't know. If Disney's standard was to scare the fucking shit out of me, <laughs> mission accomplished with Black Cauldron. <laughs> well, despite this and the, and the now connection with Disney, sales weren't significant enough that they, to increase the company's capital as they needed. So Jobs suggested they release a product to the mainstream market. They start showing this off at the largest CGI convention. It has this good response, but still not selling. Like the, the company is in real trouble. And despite the results, Jobs believed in this and increased his investment in exchange for increased stake. He had eventually put in $50 million, enough that it gave him control of the company. And by 89, the animation department had grown under Lasseter and was turned into a division that produced computer animated commercials for outside companies. And in 90, Pixar sold its hardware division. They're just going all in now, thinking that they are going to be able to get here, including all proprietary hardware technology and imaging software to Viacom Systems. They transferred 18 of their approximately 100 employees. They released some of their software tools on the open market for Mac and Windows. And it was having success. RenderMan was one of the leading 3D packages of the early 90s. Typistry was a 3D text renderer that was also successful. And Pixar continued its relationship with Disney Animation Studios, but far from at the level that it, it 
needed to. And in 91, Pixar was near bankruptcy. They laid off 30 employees in the hardware department, including the company's president, Chuck Colstead. And that was over 40% of their entire staff. And they are just barely staying afloat. I gotta say, it would suck so hard to be one of the 18 of 100 employees that they're just like, okay, well, you gotta go with the nerd hardware stuff. We're gonna go make movies <laughs> <Yeah>. over here. <laughs> We're gonna go hang out with Tom Hanks, so peace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so right after they've cut the staff, Pixar completed a $26 million deal with Disney to produce three computer animated feature films. Because Disney had been impressed with Pixar's largely Lasseter, who directed the short film Tin Toy in 88, which won the uh, 89 Academy Award for Best Animated Short. And Lasseter had previously been fired from Disney before moving over to Lucasfilms when he pushed to get the Brave Little Toaster made as a computer animated film. And they were just so pissed about it, they fired him. Wait, hold on. So so they fired him because he pushed for it and it was successful. They made it as a, a traditionally animated film rather than a computer animated film. At this point, he was still like, guys, this is this is going to be the future. We got to do computer animated for Brave Little Toaster. And they're like, that's not a thing. We're going to do this the regular way and fired him. And then, you know, with his short in 89 or in 88, the one in 89, they started trying to bring him back. So I have to take a quick second to just think of like the process where Laster is like, OK, what if we made this movie a CGI animated film? And there's like, fuck you. Get out of here. We don't want to see your fucking face ever again. That's the stupidest goddamn thing I've ever heard. And then they turn back to everyone and they were like, so then the clown fireman comes out and scares our brave little toaster, right? It's like, like the whole concept was dumb. How well do you remember brave little toaster? I am not cool. Andrew. I remember way too much shit from things that don't matter. I get so excited when I bring up something random and when has this deep specific knowledge. I'm sorry. The, the clown fireman from brave little toaster scared the shit out of me. Much like Black Cauldron, we're going through a lot of childhood trauma right now and we're gonna have to work through it. I watched that movie recently and I was like, this can't be for kids. Yeah. <laughs> that clown fireman is up there with Large Marge from Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, th this is the, the movie that Lasseter is, again, pushing hard for. And like at the time, it would have cost Disney so much money. The technology didn't exist. I get why they didn't want to do it. But firing Lasseter was obviously a mistake. So they keep trying to get him back. And he said, I can go to Disney and be a director or stay here and make history. And he takes a shot with Pixar and realizing they couldn't get him to come back. But how good he was. They look into partnering with Pixar to make a film, which previously would have been unacceptable. All their films were made in-house. But just before this, Tim Burton tried to buy back the rights to get Nightmare Before Christmas because that originated from a poem he wrote in 82 while working as an animator for Disney. And they agreed to let him make it as himself, which opened the door for partnerships with other animation studios. And then the dude didn't even make it. Wait, Nightmare Before Christmas? Tim Burton did not make a Nightmare Before Christmas. He is not the credited writer. He's not the credited director. He wrote the poem and he was going to like try to make the movie. And then they were like, hey, just so you know, we want to make another Batman. And he said, fuck you guys. So it's still called Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas because he wrote the original poem and is a producer, but he is not the director and he is not the writer. Oh, well, here, no, he's got, at least on IMDb, who knows if that's, it gives him story and character credits as a writer. Because he wrote the poem. So, oh yeah, because that's right, screenplay goes to Caroline Thompson. Yeah, Caroline Thompson and the director. Name the director. Director is Henry Selleck. Henry Selleck, great stop motion director, also did Coraline, very talented. Stop saying it's a Tim Burton movie, everyone, <laughs> for the next few months. <laughs> we gotta do more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our movie episodes. This, this is so exciting when I get to learn this kind of stuff. <laughs> so at this point, like, yeah, they're working on the deal with Disney. During production, Pixar continued to lose money and Steve Jobs often considered selling it. Even in 1994, he's talked with multiple people here, but it was only after learning from New York critics that Toy Story would probably be hit and confirmed that Disney would distribute it for 95 Christmas season. He decided to hold out. He also decided for the first time to take an active role in the company and made himself CEO. So this is the first full length computer animated film and Toy Story grossed $373 million worldwide. It was incredible. That's huge for 1995 and for that kind of thing, yeah. Oh, yeah, especially for like this. Here's a brand new technology. You were going to see what happens. Like, I'm excited for the new Dune that's coming out now, but how bad that old one was when it's like we we don't have anywhere near the stuff necessary to make this into a reality for the first one in a brand new technique. Incredible that it was so good. Very smart. That And the reason that they did Toy Story, by the way, it's because they're like, this doesn't look realistic, but if we don't make the character's people, your brain will stop telling you that it's supposed to be realistic. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's why uh, Andy is a boy with a very short haircut because hair was impossible to animate at the time. It's why the mom just has a ponytail. And, like they try to like animate hair as little as possible. And it's why they went with toys because like boy hair doesn't really move around all that much. Toys have weird skin that doesn't have to be realistic and have pores and things like that. So it was really leaning into like the problems with the kind of animation that they could do and then being like, well, we can't make a real person, but here's a toy. And you know what? It's the biggest fucking hit in the world. Well, and then they went all in on Sid's dog, <laughs> which was a bold move. But I remember seeing a video. I wish I had more knowledge of it, of someone like slowing it down and like showing like how incredible what they did do for that time was. Oh, it's absolutely crazy looking at that. And like, I mean, what you said where like it doubles up every two years, Andrew, like if you see like Toy Story then versus Toy Story now, if you watch Toy Story one and four back to back, you will just be like, oh, I just like took mud out of my eyes. <laughs> yeah, like Toy Story has for a while been something now that you could basically make on your home computer, at least in terms of, of graphics level, where, I mean, it, it was just insane that they were able to make this a reality, let alone as good as they did. And they had obviously planned on the success because just a week after its release, Pixar made it stock public and its initial public offering exceeded Netscape's, which was the thing of, or thought it was going to be of the, of the decade at the time. And it exceeded Netscape as the biggest IPO of the year. In the first 30 minutes of trading, Pixar's stock doubled forcing trading to be delayed due to just unmatched buy orders. They couldn't keep up with it. And what I thought was really interesting here, obviously, is always being creatives, is the Hollywood method of you're going to have the creatives create things and they're going to have the executives who don't really know anything come and change it to the way they want it to be. And it is just so clearly the worst system possible. And Pixar developed their system of the Pixar Brain Trust, which is the studio's primary development process where all of its directors, writers, and lead storyboard artists regularly examine each other's projects and give these very candid notes, just work towards improvement, not, you know, demands. And so it operates as a filmmaker-driven studio. And the other one is obviously the executive-driven studio and executives can give mandatory notes. And it was this incredible shift that has obviously led to so much success where you just have someone constantly checking you. And it's much more similar to the peer review process. When are you looking up something interesting? You seem so focused. So they've had some huge success here, but collaboration with Disney faltered because Disney wanted to put out Toy Story 2 as a straight-to-video release, which meant not only significantly decreased sales, but it wouldn't count towards Pixar's three-picture deal. And it was eventually upgraded to a theatrical release and Disney still wouldn't accept it as part of the previous deal. And while Toy Story was profitable for both, Pixar was saying this isn't at all equitable because they handled creation
operation and production, and Disney handled marketing and distribution, and profits and costs were split equally, except Disney owned all story, character, and sequel rights, and collected their 10 to 15% distribution fee. So the potential for future earnings is basically all going to Disney at this point, which Disney has been great at, always ensuring that they get any future money that can be made from anything, and, and screwing over creators in the process. So they attempted for 10 months to reach a new agreement, and in January 2004, they just kind of threw it in. The new deal would only be for distribution. Pixar wanted to control production and own the resulting story, character, and sequel rights. Disney would own right of first refusal to distribute any sequels, and that was pretty much it. Pixar also wanted to finance its own film and collect 100% profit, paying Disney only the distribution fee. And Pixar also asked for control over films already in production and under the old agreement, including The Incredibles and Cars, and Disney obviously considered that unacceptable from their end, and talks broke down completely in 2004, with Disney creating Circle 7 Animation to create sequels to previous Pixar projects in-house. It was very short-lived. It didn't release any films during existence, and none of the scripts it produced were ever used by Pixar. I'm shocked because I thought that's what Planes was, the Dane Cook spinoff of Cars. Oh, God. Yeah. Wait, was Planes Pixar? Planes is not credited as a Pixar film. No, it is not. Okay, that makes sense. It's a spinoff of Cars that is entirely made by Disney Studios. So I don't know how that deal actually worked, but it exists. Okay, Planes was 2013. Okay, so at, at this point, they are back together. But it's weird because Pixar often will have ones that people don't love, but you don't see many Pixar ones that are like, oh, this is a bomb. And Planes was that. <laughs> I love that Disney was like, you know what? Fine, I don't need you. I can do it on my own. And they just fall flat on their face immediately. I know, and it's like, it's your Disney. All you have done is animation. Dane <laughs> Cook in the year 2013, you dumb pieces of shit. Just, <laughs> we got our finger on the pulse. <laughs> so it, it's, yeah, it was insane too that Disney is, is falling so flat here because like all they have done is animation. That was their whole thing. And at the same time, they're saying we don't need you. Jobs declared Pixar was actively looking for other partnerships. And he, he talked with others, uh, WB, Sony, Fox, but they never even entered into negotiations. Negotiations between Pixar and Disney were possibly a lot more contentious because of the disagreements between Jobs and the Disney CEO, Michael Eisner. So when Eisner left in September 2005, negotiations between Pixar and Disney immediately resumed. And Lasseter revealed after the deal closed that Disney realized they had to buy Pixar while Iger, the new CEO, was watching the parade at the opening of the Hong Kong Disneyland and noticed that of all the Disney characters in the parade, not one was a character that Disney had created within the past 10 years. All of their newest successes were Pixar. So at that point, Iger comes in to have their uh, accountants do an analysis and confirm that Disney had actually lost money on animation in the past decade, where Pixar had just absolutely dominated. So in 2006, Disney ultimately agreed to buy Pixar for approximately $7.4 billion in an all-stock deal. And due to Jobs owning almost 50% of Pixar, this instantly made him Disney's largest individual shareholder with 7%. I gave him a seat on the board. The next highest shareholder was the ex-CEO Eisner, who he hated, who owned 1.7%. Just as a as a quick like nerd side, Michael Eisner was like, if you programmed a robot to make Disney unprofitable yeah. <laughs> and worked on it for 30 years, you wouldn't even come close to fucking Michael Eisner, who was <laughs> just the stupidest piece of shit. Like everything you know like about Disney being a success is from Bob Iger taking over in 2005. Star Wars, Marvel, Pixar, the man just like took all that under the Disney umbrella and probably saved the entire company because it was in a fucking tailspin. Michael Eisner would be like, we should have teen night in Disney World. And like <laughs> the teens would go and they would be teenagers. And then they would be like, okay, but stop doing the teenage stuff. Just 
like come here and have wholesome fun. Do you not like our video dance club that we set up for you guys? Why are you trying to have sex in it? Because yeah. <laughs> like, we're teenagers. And he'd be like, ah, oh, that doesn't add up. <laughs> like he would do shit like that all the time. The guy was insane. Go Bob Iger, fuck Michael Eisner. Continue. That's essentially it. The, the deal goes through. And as part of the deal, John Lasseter became chief creative officer of both Pixar and Disney Animation Studios and principal creative advisor at Disney Imagineering, which designs their theme parks. So at this point, Pixar is under the umbrella. Jobs is even richer. And the team here has taken significant roles at, at not just at their still basically in control Pixar their way, but with Disney funding. It was a, a fantastic end. And obviously they've, they've made so much great stuff since then. Of course, which brings us to here's where it went wrong. The fucking sequels, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Alex, what is your biggest or most disliked sequel here? I mean, I think it's probably Incredibles 2. That's probably the most disappointing one. That's a dark horse. Tell me more about why Incredibles <laughs> 2 is a failure. <laughs> why, why, why is it a dark horse? Because everyone would say Cars 2, because that's the one where Larry the Cable Guy, tow truck character, becomes a secret agent. <laughs> might I remind you, the first one's about a city boy learning about small town life, and the second one, they make Larry the Cable Guy a secret agent. <laughs> well, okay, so, <laughs> okay, I agree with that. I guess for me, it wasn't that... It it's the worst one. It's that I actually expected it to be good. Okay. I actually thought Incredibles 2, I was excited for it. And Cars 2, I was like, well, let's just let them get their money. <laughs> I, like, I never I never had an ounce of, of like, oh, this might be interesting. Just because like like Cars was fine. I, I it, it wasn't, it's not my favorite. I like Cars, but like it, I was not like, okay, great, here we go. And plus, it, I'm just looking at it. The person who wrote the screenplay for Cars 2, his name is Ben. And Queen, which I guess is too close to the name of the main character. Lightning McQueen. Yeah. Lightning McQueen. <laughs> and they just come out of nowhere. I'm, just, I'm looking at the, the thing where they show like everyone who directed and all this stuff. Brad Bird is the director and screenwriter of my favorites, like The Incredibles 1 and Ratatouille. Then he also did Incredibles 2 and he hasn't done any of the other ones. Well, Brad Bird is a genius. Uh, I believe Brad Bird also like he was so successful with The Incredibles and Ratatouille. He's also the director of of the Iron Giant, which is one of the best ones of all time. Not Pixar, but. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to say he had such a success with that that they then let him direct Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol, one of the best Mission Impossible movies, and also the one that took place with that giant Dubai Tower, and I fucking love that movie so much, all from the mind of fucking Brad Bird, but then they had him direct other shit, and it did not pan out as well. <laughs> this, this might be good for the listeners just to visualize, because maybe it's hard to keep track. So there aren't a ton of sequels, but there's plenty of them to talk about. We have Toy Story 2, 3, and 4. We have Cars 2. We have Monsters University, and we have Cars 3, and and that's all of them. That's it. Yeah, I think of the 24 movies, seven are sequels. I think it would be interesting to talk about the Toy Story sequels and just what's happening there. I didn't hate two. I like two. Three and four, they kind of start going down the path that a lot of animated movies nowadays have gone down, where it's just a lot of like celebrity voiceovers. It's a lot of color for some reason it like stuff's happening a lot and it's just busy and it's very noisy so i'm saving my opinions on two and three for the in their defense segment because i i'm a fan four four is not a bad movie it is not a bad children's movie if it existed in a vacuum and you showed me that and said like hey like do you think my kid would like this movie i'd be like fuck yeah 
your kid will like this movie. That's a great, that's a, that's a good movie right there. Good job. In the sense that it is a Toy Story movie made by Pixar. It definitely craters because I'm just like, huh, this movie has no reason to exist. Like there was a three act structure of like going through a child's relationship with their toys. Like, oh, it's brand new in the first one. I love playing with them. These are my best friends. The second one has the whole thing of just like, oh, but you know, you are going to grow up eventually. And what is your relationship with your childhood at that point? And then the third is there is a time where you're going to have to give up all those childish things and move on with your life. And that is not going to be a painful thing. That'll actually be a happy thing when it happens. That is a beautiful three arc structure for growing up and, you know, in relationships and things like that. The fourth one is a fun little just like, oh, and by the way, the toys are still having adventures. Like there's no emotional connection. <laughs> the theme of the fourth one is we just want to make sure you guys all know that the toys never die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, but it also enters the thing of just like, oh, and anything you play with is now a toy and therefore it is alive. Like there is a spork with eyes on it that comes alive because a child played with it, which is a horrifying <laughs> thought that in this world you can create sentient life by just putting googly eyes on any object and going like, you have a name now. And then that thing becomes sentient and wishes for death which is a big part of that movie is that Spork wants to die. He wants to die and be in the garbage because he's like, this is where I belong. I should not be alive. And like, you could do that to any object in your house in the Toy Story universe if you put googly eyes on it and you give it a name and then it becomes a creature that wishes for death. That is a horror. I mean, that, that feels far more like a Benini creation. <laughs> it's incredible to see this. Like, this is an incredible thought to have to process as an adult for the what am I doing? I have reason. This was Hamlet. This was all of Hamlet. And they're like, you know what? What if we put that into a spork? And the idea that there is that that level of depth is what's interesting, though, is, is that Pixar does amazing at depth, but it's normally done subtly. And it's bringing out like, oh, yeah, this has a lot of life lessons and things that apply to you as an adult. And this one was very much in your face of like, what is existence and meaning? Not only that, but like the first three are just like, here's how you deal with the arc of a relationship where like you are very close, but then you grow apart. But that is is okay. Like, I remember those three movies as just like, they came out at just the right times in my life that they were the benchmarks. Like, the third one came out, like, while I was, like, packing up to go to college and, like, it made me cry. I'll admit to that. That's fine. The fourth one has, like, a whole plot where, like, Woody reignites a spark with an old girlfriend and retires. <laughs> like, what is that? It also has the thing which, like, of course I am 100% in support of writing stronger female characters, but the way they do it in for, which is still cool. They make Bo Peep kind of cool, but it feels forced. Like they're trying to be like, sorry, she was like kind of like like complacent or whatever. Right. And now we'll correct <laughs> that here. And it's like, ah, you know, just write a new movie that's good. And you've done that plenty of times. Not only that, but like you have Jesse. Jesse exists. Yeah. What about Jesse? Was she in the fourth one? She is in the fourth one, but her and Buzz are like to the side. It was mainly Woody and Bo Peep in this one. And yeah. I gotta say, not a fan of four. Uh, so four, we'll throw that one out. Incredibles two, 
Andrew, have you seen Incredibles 2? Incredibles 2 is, I've actually only seen two sequels, Toy Story 2 and Incredibles 2. And here's the thing with Incredibles 2. Thinking back on it, I don't remember much. I remember one very well. It just, two didn't have that same impact. I, I remember, you know, mostly enjoying it at the time. But yeah, one one felt like it had purpose. It, this was a really cool, unique story. And I think that's what's so hard with Pixar is that so much of what they create originally is so unique. Nobody's had an idea like this before, at least or at least not executed to this level. And it's this really creative thing brought out in this really unique way. And then it's the same thing again in a, a sequel. And it was what was so great about this was that there wasn't anything like this. And how unique can it possibly be in the form of a sequel? And that's why it's always a bit of a letdown. Yeah, I'll agree. And I'll say, look, Incredibles 1 has Jason Lee's syndrome in it, which is a great superhero bad guy. And especially because you watch and you're just like, he has a point. Why do those people get to be better than everyone else? Right. (laughs) It has like like that kind of vibe to it. And then the second one is just like, hey, wouldn't it be bad to be mind controlled? Yeah, (laughs) it's like, I mean, it it would be bad. I don't I don't think anyone was arguing that. And they also did, by the way, because I wanted to to confirm this. Pixar has, has done a number of Toy Story spinoffs and shorts and amazingly still gets their main voice actors but they did a series of shorts named Forky Asks a Question uh, <laughs> for D- Disney Plus with Forky from Toy Story 4 voiced by Tony Hale who is just fantastic but that was one of the things too that, that I think we've discussed this before that one of the, the first movies where they're like oh we're gonna get celebrity voice actors who are celebrities for things other than voice acting was Aladdin when they brought Robin Williams in to play the genie and that was amazing because it's Robin Williams and he can do so many voices and his voice is perfectly suited for voice acting and I do think they get some great ones Tony Hale I love him in general his characters on, on Harley Quinn uh, are also amazing I think he does a great job voice acting I think they get some really good ones but also it's one of those things now where in I think a lot of animated films it's like let's just get the name rather than the right person for this and that there are so many that aren't right for that can I just uh, interject one thing it's one Please. of my favorite fun facts so yeah they brought in like celebrity voices and they work perfectly Tom Hanks as Woody, Tim Allen as Buzz, Craig Nelson as Mr. Incredible, all fantastic work. But however, when you go back though, all these side projects, like you say, Sporky asks a question, like things like that. You said it was impressive how they bring back their old voice cast. However, when Tom Hanks doesn't want to do something, the call that they make is to Jim Hanks, Tom (laughs) Hanks' brother, who has made an entire career out of voicing Woody and other Tom Hanks characters whenever Tom can't be bothered to actually do it himself. <laughs> I love that. Wait, didn't Jim Hanks come in that one episode of Scrubs too? Yeah, to, for a Turner and Hooch joke, yes. He had one line and it was the worst delivery I had ever heard. <laughs> I couldn't believe and I had no idea it was his brother because I thought there has to be someone who looks like Tom Hanks that is also an actor but no, so, and, and, and overall though I, I think Pixar has done well with, with voices. I think they've made some great choices. It's just one of those two where now that's become the, the standard and I, I think there are some stronger voices actors, but that's not really in consideration anymore. Now that the name attached has to be a lot bigger. I will give credit though. I will give credit because we did mention this earlier. Uh, this isn't about sequels, but I will say Luca, uh, which is on Disney Plus. That's a plug. They're not going to give us money. No. <laughs> First Pixar movie to be entirely animated at home and looks great. Good job. That really was impressive. Uh, I had no idea about that. No, and I think if you look at a list of studios and their releases, I can't think of any that have as many win to loss ratios as Pixar does. Well, 
Well, and, and I'll say, I don't think I've really like hated any of the Pixar movies. It, for me, it's just like, I think I have like a preciousness about them. Sure. Just giving me something I haven't seen before. And it feels like, like I'm like, did you want to do the sequel or did you feel like you had to? Right. <laughs> I don't think anyone was sitting around and saying, you know what? I have an emotional connection to the car story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And that emotional connection is missing an impossible, but it's 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 Larry the Cable guy. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, no one like was just like I have this story has to be told, and this is a Cars story. You know how we all secretly feel like secret agents deep down, uh, like redneck secret agents. Uh, what if what if we made a movie like that? It's just that that movie was made because Cars was the most profitable film from purely a merchandising standpoint. And Pixar said, we need another one of those. Like, other than that, Toy Story was the only one who had gotten a sequel before because it was their first one and it got approved like a month after the first one came out. Cars came out, it was so profitable because so many people were buying Lightning McQueen gear that they had to make another one. And then they had to make a third one to kind of redeem themselves for that second one. The entire <laughs> reason for it to exist was we need to have a sequel to Cars. It was not somebody creatively fulfilling a passion. It was in someone's brilliant idea. It was just, we need to see sell more car shit. And that's why that movie exists. Incredibles 2, I don't think came out from somebody being like, I want to revisit these characters these years later to tell some kind of you know dramatic story about, you know, what makes us special and what makes us different. They said, no, we need to sell more Incredibles stuff because the Incredibles brand has actually dipped a little bit here in the past few years and we need to reinvigorate it. And that's so much different than what everything else Pixar ever does has been. Yeah. Especially too, when you would consider that with Toy Story being made, although you obviously gave some great reasons for why they would, would go this way they had made you know this was based on the short uh, that Lasseter had made some years earlier which connected strongly to his own childhood and as they're developing their story this was very much a you've now worked for 20 years to get anything in this realm made and you get to make it on a story that's strongly connected to something that means something to you from your childhood there's obviously a lot of passion that went into it and then yeah ultimately you're successful enough that you're running a company you have to keep massively successful now which is a huge shift in how you decide what to make I will provide one last fun fact about why they were so gung-ho about making a direct-to-video Toy Story 2. It's because Aladdin The Return of Jafar was also a direct-to-video release and it made a hundred million dollars. Did it really? Yes. That is unheard of for a straight-to-video. It was direct-to-video made a hundred million dollars. So Disney was like, what do we have the rights to that we can make direct-to-video things on? And they were like, Toy Story. We need another Toy Story right away, direct-to-video. And they were like, this is not animation that you can do direct to video at this stage. Like, there's no way that's going to work. We can actually make a better looking theatrical film. Because if you look at Return of Jafar, the animation is dog shit. Yeah. <laughs> if you revisit that movie, it is clearly a downgrade where they got the people who are going to make the Aladdin TV show to come in and animate a whole movie and it looks bad. And I'm very glad Pixar at least had the creative control to be like, fuck you, we're going to make this not look terrible. And they did great. Yeah. Well, I'm proud to say that I can never revisit that movie because I've never visited it in the first place. I haven't either. I <laughs> I saw, I think, the third one, the one where they bring in Aladdin's dad. That was weird. Why the fuck not? <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, that's also the one that Robin Williams came back for because he refused to do Return of Jafar and the TV show show because Robin Williams had a contract that he would not be named in advertising and he wouldn't take up more than 10% of the poster. 
And if you look at the Aladdin poster, it's just the genie yeah. all throughout the top. <laughs> and it just says Robin Williams. And he was just like, I, I agreed to get paid literally the littlest you could pay me to do this movie. And those were the only things I asked. And in order to make it up to him, they got Dan Castanella, who does Homer Simpson. He voiced Genie in the second one and in the TV show. And then for the third one, Michael Eisner had to give Robin Williams a authentic Picasso as an apology gift. <laughs> and agreed to make a bunch of educational shorts for the Genie. So like he would only do educational shorts in Aladdin 3. So like there's a lot of like, it's called The More You Know. It's a bunch of Genie shorts about him telling us about like Harriet Tubman and things like that and like video games where like genie teaches you math but that's why they did not make any more things starring the genie that would be for entertainment purposes solely because robin was, was doing a big fuck you and was trying to do nice things for children <laughs> that is, is so cool well i mean <laughs> i i feel like that about cover we've got the history of pixar we've got all the movies we loved where it went wrong in some sequels which brings us to in their defense where we have to defend everything pixar did wrong alex what do you have well so my in their defense is that that they don't make movies for me or based on what I like and they need to make money. Yeah. <laughs> and I 100% understand like when was trying to say with why they did cars or whatever, the money's there. And if doing those movies and disappointing me is what brings on the movies that I love because those are funded, then fine. I'm 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 okay with it. It's, <laughs> I can I can handle that. And also, like, I mean, my favorite movies of theirs are unsequelable, I think. Like, it would be ridiculous to do a sequel to Inside Out. Watch, they're going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, and I am getting something from Deadline here. Okay, Inside Out. In is what it's called. Interesting. Yeah, it's it. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's like a thing where there are other studios or other like franchises and stuff that have done much, much worse. And and truly, it's not as bad. I'm just maybe a little bit of a prick about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think that's that's very fair. And you're right. It, it is something that I, and I think largely because it connects with us so strongly that it is one where, as we discussed before, you're adults that will absolutely cry at these movies. It has a strong impact on you, which means you, you're invested and you care emotionally about what happens and what these characters are used for. And I, I will say in, in, in more in their defense that they didn't start making these movies to entertain 30-year-olds who watched their movies 20 years ago. Right. Like, they made them for children or they just made them to make them. But obviously these are movies that are supposed to appeal to young people and they just happen to do them so well that anyone can enjoy them. And, you know, you have to realize like just because your nostalgia is so precious doesn't mean this next movie isn't isn't important to something else. Absolutely, that was a lot of my defense. I'm going to get creative oh, here. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is a challenge, right? So I've defeated you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I agree. I, I think that's it. Is that remember who the audience is for this. Look, before Cars came out, nobody had Cars. And that is that is all from that movie. Uh, <laughs> and I, uh, <laughs> I, I think the big thing is, too, I remember when I was a kid and I had different tapes. At that point, you'd record things off of TV. When I was five years old, had an episode of Barney. We had the Muppets Christmas special. And I watched those roughly 2,000 times. When you're a kid watching something, over and over again. There's no loss there. It's just as exciting as the first time every time. And your parents have to sit there with you and watch it over and over again until they go insane. And you don't want to give up those characters. The best thing they can give you to have a slight change to give those parents one watch of a reprieve is a sequel. That's it. Your kid is going to watch Toy Story 2 four million times now too. But you have that one watch where it's Toy Story but not the same one that you saw over and over again. And I understand 
understand absolutely the impulse and the need for it to exist. And I, I think largely too that, yeah, this is working. This is great. They're creating really creative stuff. I mean, Luca is the most recent one to come out, which I love the idea that they're like, well, Little Mermaid already exists. So what if we just <laughs> did that? But he's a boy. And they're like, that's too close. And they're like, what if he's an Italian boy? Okay, and they're like, OK, well, that's talking. a brand new movie. <laughs> that's the one. So it, look, it blurs the lines, too, between what is a new thing anyway. We all know that every idea has been done. And Pixar is just so good at it that everything they create feels so new that it feels unrepeatable. So we get annoyed when there's a sequel. But I feel like if I heard anybody outside of this complaining and being so precious about it, like, do you not know what they did here? This is this isn't for you at all. It's just so, as you said, it's so good that we love it, too, which means we got to take it as it is. That's my in their defense. <laughs> I'll have to go to bat here. And you know what? Y'all have said great things like, yes, the studio has to make money. Yes, these are films being made primarily for children. So I'm going to go another route and say, have you ever seen Monsters University? Because <laughs> that movie has a big lesson in it. And that lesson is, guess what, kids? You might not achieve your dreams. What a fucking ballsy thing for the sequel to Monsters, Inc. to just tell me when I was seeing that I was working at a theater in like St. Joseph, Missouri for that summer. They had just shaved my head because in my contract, it said that they could do that. <laughs> Wasn't even for a part. They just had the option, so went for it. <laughs> exactly. I had had a big, like giant head of hair for like my entire life. And in one text, they were like, come to the theater. We're going to shave your head. And uh, I cried. Uh, they literally, they cried. I'd never, I'd never been bald. Uh, hats felt weird for a long time. But I then went to the movie theater uh, with my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, uh, so that we could watch Monsters University and I could feel better about myself for a little bit. And instead, I get a movie that was just like, hey, you know the dream you had since you were a kid? Sometimes that's not going to work out. And my bald ass sitting there was just like, yeah, I could see that. I can see that being a thing. <laughs> but like, what a lesson. What a lesson to try to teach children because it's true. Like, hey, you might not succeed at your dreams, but guess what? Life's still worth living and you will have fantastic connections and maybe find something else that you're great at that you can do and that you will love, which, wow, ballsy thing for a sequel to Monsters, Inc. to tell me. I love the idea that without Monsters, Inc., we wouldn't have this podcast. Uh, you never would have had that realization. <laughs> no, it's you like, would have I... had it with Monsters, Inc. It was Monsters University. That's what I'm trying oh, to say. Oh, with Monsters University, yeah. <laughs> it didn't sink in until like at least two years later, but it yeah. was a movie that I thought about a lot during that time of my life. Luckily, now I'm doing comedy and I don't think about it at all. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see what the process was behind coming up with Monsters University because Monster Inc. came out in 2001. It wasn't until 2013 that that next one came out. So there's 12 years and like that's just not sequel stuff. They're not riding the wave. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like there, there's maybe the nostalgia pull of it, but for the most part, it seems like, yeah, we had a good idea and so let's make it. And they also didn't put a two behind it. So I mean, that's a really good point. At 12 years, your original audience has grown out of this. So you, you've you got to have enough faith in this as a standalone that you can release it. I didn't realize it was so far apart. And they become adults that have to be told like, hey, it's okay if you don't pursue musical theater for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone needed to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that about covers it. We've got the history of what we loved, where it went wrong and in their defense. Alex Collier, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was a delight. This was uh, very informative. 
informative, and I really have to go watch The Good Dinosaur now because I have not seen that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel it's left out of discussions, and, and maybe it's the best one, and it's just sleeping. Yeah. This podcast brought to you by Disney+. Plus. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, please go watch The Good Dinosaur and also listen to Variety. You can find that on Spotify, right? And I assume everywhere else you, you get music. Yes. Also, The Laugh Yard, a fantastic show that Alex produces. This is going to be out in November. So probably towards the end of November, they'll have a hopefully new location, or is that December for your next one? Yeah, so I produced the show with Cassidy Kulhanek. Maybe you know her as Heavenly Grandpa Online. Friend of the pod. Yes, friend of the pod. Yeah. <laughs> She's lovely, a great co-producer and pal. And we usually do it in her backyard, so we don't have like a location. And as long as you follow us on social media, we post about it whenever there's one You know, next month. That's pretty much the only way to follow when the next show is coming and figure out where it's going to be. Yes, please do. Honestly, I think it was the best outdoor show in Chicago. Oh, and I'm sad you. it's getting cold enough to keep it going there, but I'm so glad it's going to move somewhere else because it was it was a fantastic show. So yes, Alex, thank you for being here, guys. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. We also have a Patreon down in the show notes that helps us keep this show running. We'll be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.